This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Probiotics do help with weight loss. They also have added benefits of like increasing satiety, so feeling satisfied full after a meal. They have been shown to decrease food cravings, decrease depression that can be concomitant with weight, and improve body image. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss probiotics. We'll learn about cooking with allium vegetables. We'll find out about spontaneous and responsive desire. And lastly, we'll explore the hottest garden trends. But first, a little bit of business. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To fully benefit from probiotics, you need to ensure they're not destroyed by your stomach acids. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a variety of enteric coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. Find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Krista McKay graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto in 2009. Prior to this, she completed studies in clinical exercise physiology at Concordia University in Montreal, using exercise as a holistic therapy for people with diseases and disabilities. She's a busy mom of two little boys and practices naturopathic medicine in both Montreal and Montevideo, Uruguay. Welcome back to the show, Krista. How are you? I'm good, Jamie. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Today, we are going to do a refresher course on probiotics. Are you up for it? I'm up for it. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. What are probiotics? Sounds good. So, well, the World Health Organization defines them as live microorganisms that provide a health benefit to the host. So I wanted to kind of focus in on the word microorganism because they're decomposers. They're in our gardens. They're in the forest. They are breaking down the old autumn leaves and old tree trunks, and they're creating more nutrients for for new growth. They're in our compost bins as well. So probiotics are these microorganisms that live in our digestive tract, and they can use diverse types of substances for energy. So they can even convert toxic things into harmless byproducts, which is phenomenal. So We want to support this whole microbiome in our guts. But mostly what we're thinking about probiotics, I think, are supplementing. So there's two main categories. There are others, but the lactobacilli and the bifidobacterium. So there's lactobacillus acidophilus, uh, lactobacillus ruteri, lots of others. And one to mention that's actually not a bacteria but a yeast, a friendly probiotic yeast, is the Saccharomyces boulardii. And this one is not a pathogenic yeast like candida that you think of. It actually can fight off candida. Great for diarrhea and bacterial infections. Really good at actually treating C. difficile. So when you talk about these probiotics that are are supplements, do they also exist naturally within our biome? or, Or is this something that we would only get if we supplemented? 
Yeah, so uh, we get our first dose at birth. So we're getting it like passing through the vaginal canal. So these are obviously not supplemented. We're getting them from birth. We also get them from skin-to-skin contact, from air, from breastfeeding. So the first few minutes of life and the first few, you know, days are really, really important for this microbiome to start growing, start developing. Even so that some moms who have C-section births are looking to do vaginal seeding. It's a process where they take a swab of vaginal flora from the mom and they place it on the baby's like mouth and nose, eyes, etc. To, to give it that inoculation. So, yeah, we're getting, we're getting tons uh, in our childhood as well. The whole expression like let our children eat dirt yeah. is kind of what I call the training the microbiome. So we're watching like kids playing in sandboxes and, and dirt and stuff, and that's teaching their immune systems to know what to react to and what not to react to. This may be a tangent, but the whole hygiene hypothesis is kind of the idea that we're you know very hygienic. There's a there's a reason for it in today's society, but maybe we've gone to a little bit too extreme because we're seeing a lot of kind of overreactive immune systems like higher prevalence of allergies and asthma, eczema type things, using all of these like hygienic practices and our children aren't playing in in dirt per se. So we're missing the opportunity to sort of naturally intake these microbes that might be helpful to us. That's the theory, right? Yeah, we're not like training our immune systems to respond properly to what's harmful and what's not so harmful. Main places to get probiotics, but we are getting from our food, like later in life, yogurt, kefir, all the fermented stuff is a great source of probiotic. Eating fiber-rich food, of course, are prebiotics, so that's the food to feed our microbiome, so lots of fruits and vegetables, and we will get from supplements also. Okay, so why do we need to supplement? Is it simply because we're not coming into contact with these microbes as much anymore, or are there other reasons? Yeah, there's lots of reasons. We call it dysbiosis when there's an imbalance in the microflora, so uh, the dysregulation of the biota. Lots of reasons today's society in the last hundred years we're using a lot more antibiotics, so that's changing a lot of our microbiome. Diet as well is a big factor, so typically we're seeing higher sugar diets. That's going to feed the bad yeast candida, throws off the microbiome. High red meat and high fat diet we tend to see in North America that also increases the bad bacteria and higher stress changes the pH. So different colonies are are overgrowing in those kind of situations with chronic high stress. So really important to, to supplement. Okay. So probiotics are known to support our immune function. How does that work? Uh, Yeah, interestingly enough, we know 70 to 80% of our immune system is located in our digestive tract. The surface area is massive. I've heard of it uh, considered equivalent to the size of a football field with all the infoldings and outfoldings. So one basic way that probiotics protect this layer is just blocking the area. So they block pathogens from sticking to the walls and, and getting through. Another way the microbiome works in these probiotics is they secrete bactericidal type things, like antibiotic kind of actions. They secrete things like hydrogen peroxide, actually, and research shows that these probiotics can kill off things like H. pylori, salmonella, lots of the gastrointestinal type infections. And the really cool thing about them is they're immunomodulators, so they're not stimulating our immune system. They're kind of upregulating inflammatory helpers, but when there's like an autoimmune or an overreactive type immune system, they can kind of downregulate this. Same with inflammation. They downregulate inflammatory markers and upregulate anti-inflammatory markers. So 
Looking at infections like Saccharomyces boulardii to mention again, also lactobacillus rhamnosus, really good at treating acute watery diarrhea, so all the gastrointestinal infections. And an added benefit is they're great at avoiding the antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So if you, take, if you have to take antibiotics with uh, these gastrointestinal infections, it's a no-brainer to throw in probiotics at the same time. That makes sense. And to help replenish your biome because the antibiotics tend to take a scattershot approach and, and destroy all the biome and not just the yeah, bad ones. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what else would we use probiotics for? Are there other applications? Uh, yeah, so bowel issues is a, another typical one. We're seeing a lot of irritable bowel syndrome. It's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. Medical doctors will kind of go through more serious things and say, we'll call it irritable bowel syndrome. And, you know, it's stress-related, which it is definitely related, but we're seeing changes in the microbiome that's uh, like a pattern. So people with irritable bowel syndrome have decreases in a lot of the species of the lactobacilli and the bifido and are greatly benefited by probiotics. Um, when you get into the more inflammatory bowel diseases, uh, we're seeing same changes in microflora. So there's something called short-chain fatty acids. One example is butyrate. The bacteria or the microbiome are secreting these things and they kind of regulate the colon. They're anti-inflammatory. They help move the sludge along. And in ulcerative colitis, for example, there's a decrease in the bacteria um, that are producing the butyrate bacteria. Crohn's may be the opposite. These are a little bit uh, sensitive conditions, so I definitely see a naturopathic doctor for prescription of probiotics, but they can be really, really beneficial. Another place to mention, I kind of touched on the high gene hypothesis, but kids with asthma, um, multi-strains are really, really effective. There's added benefits. So, for example, we were talking about the overly active immune response and overly inflamed. So IgE is this immunoglobulin that we're seeing. We see in allergies. It creates the histamine response for, like, hives and anaphylactic reactions. So probiotics in mixtures, especially the bifido, are actually decreasing the IgE in these kids with, with asthma and allergies and stuff. So amazing improvements with the respiratory conditions. Fantastic. And if I, I can go on and on about probiotics. So go ahead. What yeah. else? What about weight loss? Does it help with weight loss? Yeah. If you're looking for the magic pill, I would say we're pretty close. Probiotics do help with weight loss. They also have added benefits of like increasing satiety, so feeling satisfied full after a meal. They have been shown to decrease food cravings, decrease depression that can be concomitant with weight, and improved body image. So yeah, weight is a, a great use of probiotics as well. And to look at more kind of serious conditions related to that metabolic syndrome mm -hmm. um, has a, the combination of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, body mass index, so usually abdominal weight gain, and uh, blood sugar imbalances, all leading to higher cardiovascular risk. So I don't know who's winning, if it's cancer or cardiovascular disease as the leading cause of death, but these are really kind of serious conditions that are very preventable. And probiotics are shown in about four weeks to lower cholesterol levels. Uh, they can regulate blood sugar balance and help with weight loss there. So really incredible. Yeah, it sounds like a panacea. And, and I presume there's, there's no contraindications. Like there's nobody who shouldn't take probiotics, is there? Or is there? No, I would say no. I'd say there's very rare 
side effects. Um, pretty much anyone can take them from a really young age to a quite like older ages. Not, I would say, rare side effects. Okay, so we've established that everybody more or less can take them, and they're good for you. What yeah. should you be looking for in a probiotic? Now that you've decided to take one, how do we go about taking them and getting them? So you definitely, they're, they're live organisms, so you want to get them from the fridge at the store, and you want to keep them in the fridge at home. There's a bunch of research on four degrees being the more, most viable temperature to keep them fresh at, especially the bifido bacteria, they're heat sensitive. Another like consideration is to look at the stomach acid. So that's always been a challenge for probiotics to get mm -hmm. them in, especially when we're looking at the bowel diseases. We want the, the bacteria to pass through the stomach. Bifidobacteria specifically, again, really sensitive to gastric juice. So within an hour, it was all dead. And so if you think about your when you're eating, your stomach empties, and it could be 30 minutes to a couple of hours. So you're pretty much killing all of the microflora that you're trying to get into you. Okay, so how do we guarantee that our probiotics are going to get past the stomach acid to the intestines where we need them? Yeah, so the smart companies doing their research are using a process called enteric coating. A couple of strains will get through the stomach acid, like L. ruteri, for example, but the rest of them pretty much die. So you want to look for enteric coated. It's basically like waterproofing or acid proofing. Um, it covers the joint where the two sides of the capsule connect, so where the acid could leak in, and it makes sure the capsule doesn't break apart until it passes into the small intestine uh, and it kind of is more of a neutralized environment, less acidic. And then you're making sure that these live cells are getting into the small intestine and then large intestine where you want them to go. I know that some of the counts necessary for the probiotics to be effective are, are pretty substantial. If people are reading the label, like what counts should they be looking for in a probiotic? It depends on what you're treating, but I usually recommend around like a 10 to 20 billion dosage. If you're taking hundreds of billions and they're not enteric coated, you're not going to get a lot of those in, so you're wasting your money. You're paying tons of money for a high, high dose, but you're not getting them in. So it really is worth your money to just pay for an enteric coated at a 10 to 20 you know, billion range with a variety of strains, and uh, you're going to get the results like the research is, is showing because I think that's the problem. There's all kinds of stuff on the shelves, and they're not necessarily live organisms by the time you get them. If you aren't treating a specific health issue, but you just want to be healthier, in other words, like, you know, it's like a tune-up as opposed to like a diagnosis, yeah. do, do you advocate like a particular strain or would you go with multiple strains of probiotics? Definitely multiple strains. Our microbiome is extremely varied. When there's pathology, I think it's usually like there's uh, an imbalance in some bacteria. So sometimes, interestingly enough, in something like autism, we didn't really touch on mental health. It's yeah. a whole other area um, to look at. But autism has high amounts of clostridium and low bifido. So they're actually treating with like a, I believe it's gram-negative antibiotic to kill off the clostridium and then throw in a ton of variety of strains because um, our microbiome isn't just one uh, strain. So that's really uh, important to have like the, the diversity. Okay. And, and you should be able to find that on the label, right? Like the label will indicate like how many strains yeah, so there are? The label will have a whole long list of different species and strains. Uh, so it'll say lactobacillus acidophilus, lactobacillus rhamnosus. They'll tell you, the company should be telling you the colony forming units like 
how many billion of these, how many billion of those. And sometimes you'll see in brackets like the the strain, uh, so capital number letter kind of combo, because mm-hmm. there are different strains of bacteria. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem. My pleasure. Good to be back. That was Dr. Krista McKay, ND. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss allium vegetables on the tonic. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To fully benefit from probiotics, you need to ensure they're not destroyed by your stomach acids. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a variety of enteric-coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. Find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Echinoforce by A. Vogel is clinically proven to prevent and treat multiple virus strains. Made with fresh, organic, GMO-free plants, it's 10 times more effective than dried echinacea products. Safe and effective for the whole family, including pregnant and nursing women. Order Echinoforce online at avogel.ca and get 20% off with promo code TONIC20. Echinoforce is also available where natural health products are sold. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Shauna Lindzen is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show, ma'am. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So still a little cold, still a little snowy. We're going to pretend like it's spring because it's coming around the corner and we're going to talk about spring vegetables. Does that sound good? Exactly. There is hope. (laughs) (laughs) Hope springs eternal. There we go. (laughs) And we're going to talk about allium vegetables. So for those who don't know, what are allium vegetables? So the allium vegetable group includes things like onions, garlic, leeks, shallots, chives, anything that has that sulfur flavor to it. And that's among, I would say I cook with those absolutely daily, at least one, probably two or three every single day. You? Yes. And which is really actually healthy for you. Like studies show that you should get about a third of a cup of the allium vegetables daily. So if you're cooking with, if you're using, let's say, green onions as a garnish or cooking with onions and garlic, that's a good thing. 
Yeah, so I don't know if I could have a third of a cup of garlic, for example. That's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> lot of garlic, and, and I think doctors would probably tell you to have breath mints along with it. But exactly, yeah, it doesn't have to be all at once. And okay, it's a fair mixture. enough. Yeah, fair enough. Between you and I, I'm not having a lot of these at breakfast. I tend to go sweet rather than savory, which means you know they're being built into the rest of my day. I suppose we don't have to spend too much time on the onion per se. Everybody knows what onions are, but maybe we could talk about some of the others. And are there health benefits to, to the onions and, and the alliums? Oh, yeah. There are actually, all of the alliums have really strong health benefits. The sulfur compound, like that really, you know, when you cut it, it burns your eyes and it's it's so strong. That's actually a really healthy compound. It's good. Um, it's studied in terms of lowering your cholesterol, lowering your blood pressure. So it, it is a really healthy group of vegetables. So the onions and the garlic actually has a compound called allicin. I think we've mm-hmm. probably talked about this before. Yep. It's one of those compounds that is really exclusive to garlic. And when you cut the garlic up, like you chop it up or you chew it, the allicin becomes more active. And that's the healthy compound that you want more of. So, for instance, if you are cooking with onion and garlic, it's good to chop your garlic in advance. And I'm only saying 10 minutes, like 5 to 10 minutes in advance of your onion. And that's because the oxygen will react with the healthy compound in the garlic. So chop your garlic up, let it sit for 5 to 10 minutes, and then move on with the rest of your cooking. Hmm. Helpful pro tip. All right, so let's go through the various forms of the allium vegetables, and then maybe you could tell me how you use them in your everyday cooking. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so number one is scallions, and, and I think a lot of people use scallions for garnish, but you can cook with them too, right? Yeah, so the scallions, you can... I like to use them, like if I'm doing, let's say, like a tofu stir-fry and I'm mixing garlic, ginger, I actually like to mix the scallions in cooked with like kind of a triad there. And then um, you really get the intense flavor of the allium vegetables. But when I'm doing, let's say, a soup, like a ramen type of soup, I also call them green onions. So scallions are synonymous with green onions. I like to chop up like quarter of a cup or half a cup and put them in it. So they just slightly will. It takes off that sharpness when they're just warmed up. And they're also actually, I don't know, Jamie, do you like a raw onion or a cooked onion or both? Okay, so I'm okay with both. I think I prefer most of my onions cooked or pickled, Mm. but I would say with the scallions, because they tend to be lighter, I would shy away from cooking them. They tend to go in last. I use them most in Asian applications. You mentioned tofu. I'm actually making tofu with scallions as a garnish in a peanut sauce with broccoli. Like That's a go-to that we do. Yes, delicious. Super healthy and delicious and flavorful. And it's interesting because I really don't like raw onions. Yeah, no, I, right. I like them cooked, yeah. but I think they have a place in, let's say, if you're making a bean salad. If you don't have a raw onion in there, it really falls flat. So I like to use them, but then not eat them. Yeah, I find if I'm pickling the onions, mm-hmm. they maintain their texture and, and their flavor, but you don't have that after resonance as much. You know, like the post-onion eating feeling in your mouth. 
Does that Which make is sense? uncomfortable. I, yeah, I find that more uncomfortable than anything. So I agree. So the green onion is actually an outstanding substitute if you don't like the really strong yeah. taste of onion. You can use the green part of the scallion, which is less potent. Yes. Okay, so what about garlic? I mean, I, I used to be okay with raw garlic, but, you know, you really... Everybody around you has got to be okay with it, too. And, you know, I, I tend to cook with it more as I get older. I, I don't eat as much raw garlic as, as Really? Possible. Yeah. It depends. Like, if we're talking, I like garlic kind of across the spectrum. Like Fair enough. I sometimes like it raw, but I also like to um, roast garlic, like where you sure. just cut off the top, you pour a bit of olive oil on it, you wrap it, like in parchment or foil, mm-hmm. bake it off. And it becomes really sweet. So it's, it really changes it up when you cook garlic. Like the flavor is really dulled. Like it's um, sweetened instead of really strong. You, you know, for me, perhaps it's too much information, but when I roast garlic, I find that I don't digest it as well. When it's roasted? Yeah, and you would think oh. it's counterintuitive. But for me personally, I find it harder Guess to... Guess what? I have an answer to that. What's that? So when you roast it or cook it, you are increasing the sugar content of it. Okay. Right? Yeah, it of course. Sweeter. It's caramelized, yep. And have you heard of FODMAPs? Yeah, of course. So it increases the FODMAPs, which ah. um, can make it uncomfortable for you to eat, and you can get some GI distress there. So that's the answer. Okay. By the way, it's not going to stop me from eating it because I love roasted garlic. <laughs> no, I'm, just, you'll be a bit I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I, well, I'm not alone. I guess other people feel the same that's way. That's why. And want to know something else now that we're on that topic. If you take oil yeah. and you put, let's say, some green onion or onion into the oil, and then you just use the oil, but mm-hmm. you don't use the onion, that's another way to reduce the FODMAP. Yeah. If you want the flavor, but you don't want the sugar compounds that give you the stomach ache. You are full of helpful hints today. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so the next two are my favorites, and I cook with them probably more than anything else, and those are leeks and shallots. And I know they're separate, but I love them both, so I, just, I group them together in my head. And they are both phenomenal when you crisp them up. And yep. you can crisp them up in oil or in the oven. I love a shredded leek with some olive oil put on it. And then you can put some fresh herbs. You can even like saute leeks in a bit of butter and olive oil and mm-hmm. then put some fresh herbs like thyme, mm-hmm. salt and pepper. And you actually have a side vegetable that is delicious. Leeks are the most mellow of all, all the ones on our mm-hmm. list today. And, and uh, I use them in soups, actually. I, I actually make my minestrone with leeks. Do you know what? I often will as well. It gives it a really, as you say, milder flavor, and they're fantastic. I would highly recommend for people to try leeks. So I love shallots, and we probably go through more shallots than anything else, and I find like it's a nice... I think of it as almost like a cross between garlic and onion. So yeah, let you, you don't I agree. have you don't have to use both if you get if you have shallots. Um, they are beautiful in butter. They are fantastic to pickle. So I love the shallot. I'm just putting it yeah, out right there. And another pro tip, actually, yeah. for shallots: if you're making a salad dressing with shallots and you don't love the raw yeah. kind of bite. Cut the shallot up and let it sit in vinegar Mm -hmm. that you're using in the dressing for about 10 minutes, and it will completely change the the strength of the shallot. Like, you'll still 
get the good flavor, but it's not going to be as like potent and overpowering. Okay, so here's my tip. So like if you like Mexican cuisine, but you find that what you're cooking doesn't taste authentic, having pickled red onions or pickled shallots available as a condiment will make a world of difference and you feel you'll feel like you're actually in a Mexican restaurant if you use that. Them. Yeah, it's like the finish or if you do yeah. like fish exactly with fish tacos. Yep. Any sort of seasoning with that kind of bang from the pickling vinegar kind of sugar complex. And I like to actually do a quick pickle, which is super easy. And you can, if you have a microwave, you could even do that and just look up a recipe for a simple, quick pickle. It completely elevates your dish. Okay, so the last one on the list, I actually grow in the garden, but I don't have too much time for. So maybe you can change my mind. What are your thoughts on chives? Okay, chives and creamy dressings for me. So you could add chives to anything with the Greek yogurt or the mayonnaise, just snip them in. It is just such a good combo. Or if you use chives with fresh dill, it's just fantastic. So if you're making like a, we were talking about quick pickle, like a, like a cucumber salad, mm-hmm. chives go perfectly in there. Interesting. So you've, yeah. hit, you've hit a couple of points, and this might explain why we don't use chives so much. We're a mayonnaise-free house because Naomi can't abide by mayonnaise. Oh. And, and dill and tarragon are my two least favorite herbs. So like if chives go with them, I kind of match them up with those and I won't use them. But that's, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, you're, so you're, it's not your go-to. It is not. There you go. But they're easy to grow and they look lovely. Lovely little purple flowers. So Yeah, and they're also a nice garnish too. You could just chop them up and garnish things with them instead of parsley. It's it's a nice little change. Fair enough. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. What do you want to talk about next month? Let's talk about iron. Okay, let's talk iron about requirements. Yeah. Let's talk about iron then. That was Shauna Lindzen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss spontaneous and responsive desire on the tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Buston of The Tonic. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know for what ails you. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop center. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself, and you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlislejansen.com. She can be contacted directly at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show, Carlisle. How are you? Hello, Jamie. I'm well, thanks. Great to be back. Yes, so February, we'll have missed the mark. We aimed a little too far and we're past Valentine's Day, but everybody's mind 
is on sexuality and desire. So, so you know, you're the perfect guest this weekend. And let's talk a little bit about desire. And what does society tell us about desire? Well, society tells us that we're supposed to feel horny all the time. This is what we get from movies, from porn, from people. Um, and we think that that's the normal way to be. And for some of us, that is the case, that we do feel horny regularly especially at the beginning of a relationship. Everything's new, it's exciting, there's endorphins running through our bodies. We're like thinking about sex regularly because we're with somebody new, we want to try different things. And so for the first up to three years of a relationship, we feel generally a higher desire than later on. Sure. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because if you're with somebody for a long time, things are less new and exciting. It doesn't seem like there's as much to discover. So you don't have that new relationship energy anymore. I suppose it depends on how imaginative you are, right? Like everybody's got their own, right? You know, There, there are different types of desire, right? Yeah, and the one that we normally think of as desire is what what's called spontaneous desire. So for people who maintain that sense of feeling horny, wanting to have sex on a regular basis, they would be considered having spontaneous desire. And this tends to be about 75% of men, 15% of women, where just out of nowhere it's like, oh, I feel like having sex, or they see their partner, or they're sitting on the couch, or they're having a shower, and this idea of, oh, I'd like to have sex, comes to them. And then they often act on it, depending on, I mean, obviously, if you're in a meeting, you probably won't act on that. But if there's somebody around, or you're by yourself, you might then decide, okay, I'm going to do something with this. Okay, that's spontaneous desire. Is there a different type of desire? So responsive desire is the one that we don't often talk about. It's not as well known. And 30% of women and 5% of men have this kind of desire. I That's according to studies. I would argue that more than that in terms of women have this kind of desire. And it's kind of the opposite. And so rather than getting this idea or this feeling, I'm horny, and then stimulating oneself, we have to kind of be stimulated, and then we feel horny, which it sounds really backwards, but it's more a matter of we feel desire in response to sexual pleasure rather than in anticipation of sexual pleasure. And so sometimes the way I will frame this is, you know, if you've ever been in a scenario where a partner initiated sex, And you're like, oh, you know, it's been a while, okay, I should probably, you know, take one for the team. And so we kind of go along with it, but we weren't really in the mood to begin with, or it wasn't even on our radar. And if the kind of stimulation happens that turns us on, so we start kissing or there's full body touch, as that begins, we start to notice, oh, kissing, that feels really good. Now I want maybe things to move a little further south and touch on my breast. And then as that happens, we're like, we get more aroused and that stimulates us to feel more horny. And we think, oh, that feels really good. Now I want a little more. Right. And as things progress, the physical arousal leads to more desire for more intensity. And before we know it, we're like, woohoo, this is so great. How come it's been so long since we had sex? (laughs) That's a classic classic example of responsive desire at work. 
Okay, so I was doing a little bit of math with you know the percentages that you had there. <laughs> there appears to be a bit of a gap. Are there people that simply don't have either forms of desire natural to them? For sure. There are people who are asexual. There are people who might have a little bit of both. But, you know, there's all these other things that also get in the way of any kind of desire. So if we're exhausted, if we don't feel safe in a relationship, if we've got a lot of stress in our lives, if the sex that we have doesn't turn us on, then we're not going to be excited, right? We're not going to get that arousal going. If we feel pain, which a lot of people experience, that's going to get in the way. If we have shame about sex in general, um, we don't orgasm, our erections don't happen as we want them to, or feeling like our partner ignores us or only touches us when they want to have sex, and there's not really other kinds of intimacy. Of course, if there's a history of trauma, that's also going to impact. So there are many other pieces that factor into this that would lead to things not necessarily adding up to 100%. And and this is all newer kind of research. So who knows, there might be a third kind of desire that we haven't really discussed but or found yet. But it, it's not straightforward, is the bottom line. It does not sound straightforward. So with all these impacts, how would you know if you are responsibly desirous? I mean, you gave an example of how it might manifest, but how else would you might be able to tell? So I would say that... If you notice that you need some things to happen to kind of get in the mood. So you like to have a glass of wine to relax. You notice that you feel horny when you're on vacation. You notice that you feel more desirous after you've been snuggling in bed and sharing emotions with each other. Or in the shower, you have a shower together and just the touch kind of brings things up. So paying attention to what are the times when you do feel horny, and especially if you sort of go along with it, what's happening that gets you finally in the mood? And those are going to be indications that probably it's responsive desire. And a lot of partners might notice that too. Yeah. And realize, oh, you know what? My partner's rarely in the mood, but I bet, you know, usually if I give a massage or we start by snuggling or we talk about, um, you know, our day over a glass of wine and start just kind of stroking gently, right? That is an indication like, oh, my partner might have responsive desire. Okay. I suppose it's a problem if both partners are responsibly desirous because who takes the lead? But leaving that aside for a moment. Well, wh- but then, then you just, you, if you recognize it, then you make sex dates. And you say, you know, we're not necessarily in the mood, but let's get in the mood, right? If yeah. we want to, if sure. we want to pursue a sexual relationship. What else can you do if you know that either you or your partner is responsibly desirous? So, what you want to do is you want to talk about the kinds of things that get you turned on. You want to talk about what helps you to get aroused, and what is it? Is it kissing? Is it? having a bath together? Is it lying naked in bed? For some, it might even be something more energetic, like a pillow or a tickle fight. So what are the kinds of things that are going to jumpstart things? And then deciding, okay, well, it's not one person's responsibility to do this all the time. We both can be responsible for the person with responsive desire 
getting aroused and both people sort of taking ownership of that and trying to make that happen. It also means, though, that we need to talk about the fact that sometimes kissing or touching or cuddling is not going to lead to sex. And that's okay, too. It'll just be kissing or touching. It'll just be a really hot shower together. That both partners need to be okay with that so that there can be less pressure on just enjoying the moment. Okay, so hmm, I'm listening to what you're saying. And, you know, in this current climate of consent, how does this, like, does it create potential problems with people having sex if they may not want to have sex or they're not ready to have sex emotionally or physically? Like, how do you, how do you bridge that gap? And do you need yeah, to be concerned so about that? I think it's a little bit, we have to be careful because some people think then, well, does that mean I have to have sex when I don't want to? Right, That's yeah. not what we're saying here. Yeah. What we're saying is, Rather than waiting for the moment where, oh, I feel horny, right? And expecting that to fall out of the sky or expecting that when a partner initiates, I'm going to always be responsive to it. Finding times when, uh, I don't know if I'm interested in sex right now, but I am open to some kind of touch. I'm open to making out and seeing where it goes. I'm open to touching and seeing if my arousal builds. I'm open to feeling some kind of pleasure. So as long as everybody knows that we're going to make out because that feels like fun, but I don't know if I want more or not, and that's okay. So that you only do what you feel open to in that moment, and there isn't necessarily an expectation that it's going to lead to a full sexual experience. Okay. We have time for a, one last question, and that is, like, in your experience, how, do you, how does one work with responsive desire? So you need to take responsibility for your desire. Know what it is that turns you on or your partner so that you can have a kind of a tool bag at hand of like, okay, these are the things that we decide we want to have sex maybe twice a week or twice a month. You know, I need to get these things ready. Talk about with our partner what feels good, what would feel even more pleasurable, what would really help me get into the mood. And then when the time comes, really savoring that intimacy, being present, not thinking about where is this going, what is my partner going to expect, but what feels good right now. And sometimes it means that we need to also get creative and practical. So sometimes it's like, okay, well, making out was really great, but I don't really feel like going any further. How do I then provide pleasure for my partner and make sure that my partner doesn't feel dissatisfied? And how can we create an environment where my partner doesn't feel disappointed, but can feel pleasure and satisfaction that doesn't require me going against my boundaries. Sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. All right. It's always a pleasure. That was Carlisle Jansen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll talk about garden trends on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of the Tonic Magazine. 
The Tonic is published six times a year and is delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. It's also available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And if you miss it, you can also read The Tonic online at thetonic.ca. Hey, if you like The Tonic Talk Show, I know you'll love The Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed. She's passionate about the connection between human health and nature and believes that regenerative gardens can help create food security and broaden ecological diversity. Melissa has been featured on Farmer's Footprint in Toronto Life, has been a guest speaker at Allen Gardens, and has been well-received as a garden expert online and in person. And for more information, you can visit thegoodseedto.com. Welcome back to the show, Melissa. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me again, Jamie. So this is a fun interview. You get to tell us, you get to be the expert today and tell us what's coming and what's hot and what's new for those <laughs> for those who really want to jazz up their gardens. Are you up for it? I'm up for it. I'm smiling and ready. Okay, so what are some of the garden trends for this year for a perennial garden? Okay, well, in the perennial garden space, roses continue to dominate. So we're seeing just a huge demand right now in the market for all sorts of roses, but especially English roses. So David Austin is a British rose breeder. They create the most luscious, big, juicy, fragrant blooms, and they are in high, high, high demand. So they're beautiful. They come in lots of different colors. They have incredible fragrances. And year over year, they perform, and they're just in very, very high demand. So let me ask you, because, you know, when I first started gardening, and I've been gardening you know, I, I do it much more now than I used to. I always found roses to be a challenge. Was it just my inexperience or, or are roses hard to grow sometimes? Do you know what? I think they they do have a bit of a rep for being a little bit difficult to grow. There are some pests that are pretty common. I think if you stay the course, plant using the instructions given to you by the grower and give them a couple of years to really take root, you'll be very impressed. And do we have the kind of climate here in Toronto that can support the type of roses that they grow in in England? Like, I I know you said English roses, but, like, I presume literally we're bringing over varietals that have been developed there. Yeah, that's a great question. So for David Austin roses in particular, when you go onto their website to order, they're going to tell you what zone the roses are best suited for. So as long as you're making sure that if you're in Toronto, for example, you're in zone, let's say, 6B, you're not choosing something that's not meant for that zone, you won't have a problem. Cool. All right, so the next question I have is near and dear to me because, you know, we've talked about my raised gardens, and that yeah. is an edible garden. So what's new and exciting, and what should I be looking for when I when I do my buying? Okay, well, that's a great question. Uh, trends right now for the edible garden are all about the Epicurean experience. Mm-hmm. So edible gardening, as we know, has really taken off. A lot of people are growing in their front yards, backyards, pots, rooftops, all over. And so as this has sort of come to be more commonplace, we're really seeing uh, the elevated edible garden be something that's happening. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing an increase in people planting mustard greens. Yep. And these are annual greens that thrive in the spring and fall, and they have more of a bite than a traditional salad green. They taste like horseradish. I have them in my garden. 
Yeah, so there's all sorts of different flavors and colors and leaf textures. So yep. there's one that's called wasabi, which tastes exactly like yeah. wasabi. There's huge red purple tones and I think they're just a blast to grow. They really change the salad that's going on your plate. It's a great way to change up what's in the garden. So I'm glad you are growing them. And the other trend we're seeing this year is seed producers who are breeding not only for disease resistance, storage capability, let's say, but also for flavor. Mm -hmm. So there is a show on Netflix called Chef's Table. A lot of us have watched it. And one of those episodes features, I think in the first season, a chef by the name of Dan Barber, who is from Bluestone Barn. And he's actually collaborating now uh, on a seed company called Row 7 Seeds. So if you're looking to grow a super tasty cucumber, they have uh, an experimental one that's amazing. They have a new uh, midnight Roma paste tomato Mm. that sort of grows in these beautiful shades. And you can preserve and make sauce with it. It's a really incredible company. And so, again, just this big focus on garden to table. So in the show notes, Melissa, we're going to do a link to that company so that if people want to buy the seeds from them, they can do so directly. Okay. Definitely. Okay. So some of us have budgets for our garden, you know, some others will pay whatever it takes to to make it beautiful, (laughs) but, but some of us aren't prepared to go that extra mile. So what should we splurge on for our garden this year? Okay, that's a great question. So I'm going to sound like a broken record here because you and I have talked about this a lot. Yep. But I want you to splurge on amending your soil. Yep. So good quality worm compost at the beginning of the season is the ticket. And buy from a reputable source. There are sources that are certified organic. You know, you really want this in your garden to grow strong, disease, and pest-resilient plants. And this is hands down the best way to spend your money for 2022. So let me ask you, so if I have a raised garden that let's say is two by three feet, how much worm castings would go into that to uh, mediate my soil? Yeah, I mean, if you are open in the bottom of that raised bed to the soil below, you're going to be in a bit of a different situation than if you're in a closed container. So I think yours are open below, correct? No, actually mine are closed. Yours are closed. Yep. Okay, so you're going to want to go heavier than somebody who's got access to sort of the minerals and nutrients that are in that lower soil. So I want you to add a good four-inch layer. Oh, okay. That's significant. Okay. Yeah, and you can gently turn that into the surface of the soil. I don't want you to till by any means, but, you know, moderately incorporate. Yep. And then the other item you might want to splurge on this year is irrigation. So if you don't have a garden that's irrigated, you know, that's something that you may want to consider spending on, especially as we're moving out of COVID and we're all sort of starting to meander out and travel a little bit more. This is a way to ensure that your garden stays perfectly watered all season long. Good ideas. Now, if we're spending the money there with those two ideas, where might we be able to save some money? So local big box stores have some great deals for you. Things like hand tools at a big box store are going to be great quality, and they're also going to be competitively priced. The other tip I have for you is that big box stores are sort of getting into the game on some of those specialty plants. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, last year I found the very coveted Cafe Olay Dahlia Tuber at a big box store at a very reasonable price, and it grew just as well as one purchased from a very specialty grower. Okay, so, but how do we know 
which of the specialty plants they're going to do a good job with, or is it worth the risk? You're just saying it's worth it because they seem to be doing a good job. Well, so for the dahlia, it was a tuber. So you're actually okay. buying the, uh, not the root, but, you know, you're, you're buying yeah. sort of a seed material. I think if you're looking at actual plants, no matter where you're buying, I want you to inspect those plants before you buy. Sure. Gently ease them out of their container. Make sure they're not root-bound. And that's always just sort of a good start. Got it. All right. So you've advocated for certain trends. Which trends are out there that you think might not have so much merit? Okay. I'm going to get a bit controversial. Okay. I'm braced. (laughs) Go on. You're braced. Okay. Two things to avoid in my mind. One, I'm not a big fan of these bicolor annuals. So we've seen a lot of these like purple and white petunias come out in the past couple of years. I personally find them very jarring to the eye in the garden. Mm -hmm. So I'm not on board with that trend. The other trend I'm not on board with are these kind of like garden hacks. So everyone who wants to just put their eggshells and their coffee grounds right into the garden, you know, the second after they're done with them in the kitchen, I'd prefer you compost them. Yeah. You know, I end up composting them out of laziness. I collect them and then I, and then I never get around to putting them in the garden until they've composted. So there you go. I'm ahead of the curve through laziness. So there you are. You're, you're trendy lazy. <laughs> All right. So one of the issues that came up last year when I was planting, in addition to having to line up outside and not being able to sort of peruse the garden centers like I, I might have wanted to during COVID was that there were shortages and supply chain issues. Is that going to be an issue for us coming out of COVID this year or are we free of that? You know, unfortunately, I think it is. I'm really seeing entire websites even for large nurseries sell out very quickly of product this year. So the demand is a very high in the garden sector right now. And I think that, again, purchasing power is also high because we have been at home. We've been investing in our outdoor spaces instead of spending our discretionary dollars on travel or dining out. And, you know, we've all sort of just been sitting on our laptops itching to purchase things for the garden. So if there is something you need, if you do see something for sale that you covet, that you desire for the garden this year, I encourage you to buy it as it becomes available. And also the same goes for those nurseries. We had huge flower shortages in 2021. That delay, uh, especially from Holland, continues. And so it's a challenge out there. Do you know of any local purveyors who will allow you to pre-order? Will anybody do that for you? Like almost like commission purchases for more significant items, obviously not like flowers, but but larger plants. Will they allow uh, that? I think the best idea is to go and speak to your local uh, your local garden ventures. I know, for instance, in Toronto, Fiesta Gardens is pretty amenable to conversations like that, especially okay. if you have something in mind. I do. Um, and I think as far as ordering edible plants, Urban Harvest is a local Ontario company, women-led, uh, certified organic. They have beautiful seedlings that they produce every year, and they do sell them on Bloor at Lansdowne in Toronto, just across the street uh, from that value village. And I think if you speak with them as well and say, listen, I want to order, like say you want a pesto garden this mm-hmm. year, right, Jamie? Yep. And you're like, I'm going all out. I want 18 Genovese basil plants. Yeah. doesn't hurt to make the call and ask. Yep. If you can do it. Sound advice. Yep. Thanks for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? Oh, next time I want to talk about one of the most asked questions I get. I want to talk about shade gardens. Fantastic. We're going to throw some shade. 
to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Krista McKay, ND, Shauna Lindzen, Carlisle Jansen, and Melissa Cameron. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us on It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.